0: Great! Sensational! Terrific! What is it? I told you! Cybercrimeology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere
1: nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and did you know that Charles Darwin was an entomologist? He would spend many hours collecting, comparing, and cataloguing insects. You never know what insights could come from having a good set of specimens or data available to scientists. So it's good that for this episode we'll be talking with Rachel Blyman from Temple University about the work she's been doing at the Cybersecurity in Application Research and Education Lab, which among other things includes the Critical Infrastructure Ransomware Attacks dataset that is available to researchers on request. We will, of course, be joined later in the episode by Professor Nicola Vermay to answer some of my stupid questions about cybercrime law, so make sure you stick around until the end. Now first, I'm always very curious about the journeys that bring people to cybercrime research. So let's hop into the conversation with Rachel Blyman here, So, I just asked her about what it was that brought her to her studies on social engineering and ransomware.
2: I was an undergrad student at Temple, and I took a class with the professor who I'm now working with, Dr. Anshul Rege. And it was a computer crime class. And I was a criminal justice major, but I was also a computer science minor. And I thought that was a really cool way where two were blended together. And so I took that class. And the summer following it, I emailed Dr. Breguet at the time. And I asked her if she had any research opportunities because I was in the honors program at Temple. So they gave us a little summer grant to do a research project. So I reached out to her and she said, yes, come work. And she basically gave me the option to either develop my own project or work on one of hers. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, okay, I'll develop my own project. And it was about social engineering because that's what we learned in her class. And it kind of just snowballed from there. I kept working with her, did a lot of social engineering stuff, and she convinced me to apply for the PhD and I've been working with her ever since that was yeah all the way back in 2019 yeah so what
1: is social engineering
2: people define it differently but essentially it's hacking the human getting someone to do or say something that they otherwise would not have done and usually for your own benefit the person who's doing the social engineering and it can be used maliciously in cyber attacks but social engineering is not inherently malicious. It happens. People do it all day, every day. Children do it. I used to do it when I was babysitting kids all the time. Um, It's kind of a constant. You don't always even realize it's happening.
1: How would you separate the concept of social engineering from the concept of a a con?
2: In a, a typical con, social engineering will most likely be used. There's a bunch of different Techniques of social engineering, for instance, when someone's doing the reconnaissance part of their con, gathering all that information that they're going to need, they often will use OSINT, open source intelligence. So that's one part of it. When they're doing the con, if it's in person, talking way past security guards, or, um, convincing someone to send them a file or anything like that. Those are all social engineering tactics that are associated with
1: criminal acts. Maybe it's a bit broader than social engineering than just because a con's just tightly bound to the idea of scams.
2: Yes. Yeah, so scams use a lot of social engineering in them. Right. But, yeah, social engineering is pretty broad, so it can be used maliciously, but it's not always malicious.
1: So is social engineering something that people, like a set of talents that people are born with, or is it something that can be learned?
2: It's definitely something that can be learned. Some people are going to be better at it than others, especially if you're a social person, you're a good talker, you're smooth. That will definitely give you an advantage. Women are also typically good social engineers just because they're inherently more trustworthy in other people's eyes. People trust women over men, but it's definitely something that you can practice and learn. Um, You might have to get out of your comfort zone a bit because it's a lot of thinking on your feet on the spot, adapting. Then there's also the open source intelligence side, which is definitely, those are skills that you can learn. And it doesn't require any interacting with people yet at that stage. So that's kind of a good introduction to social engineering for some people.
1: What would it be in practice then?
2: So there's not just one social engineering attack, right? It's used before and during other cyber attacks. So, for instance, there's one form of social engineering called baiting, where an attacker will kind of prey on the curiosity of humans. They might leave like a USB stick behind, just lying around that has malware on it. And human nature, where you want to plug it in, see what's on there, see who it belongs to. So that's one example. If someone's trying to break into a server room, just being able to... Convince the guard that you work there, for instance, or that you're a maintenance person that you have to get in and fix a pipe or something like that. It can come in many different forms. We see a lot of phishing emails or the spam phone calls, which is voice phishing or vishing. Those are also forms of social engineering where they typically try and get you to click the link and it downloads a virus or it sends you somewhere and you have to put in your credit card info because you think. You're going to your bank's website and it's not actually that. So it has a lot to do with psychology of persuasion.
1: For technical hacking, one of the very useful tools for understanding how hacking works and training better intrusion penetration testers and also better defenders is capture the flag competitions. You've been involved in doing them for social engineering as well. Can you explain a social engineering capture the flag?
2: Yeah, sure. So... We take the typical computer technical pen test and we put it in the lens of social engineering because that's one of the most common attack vectors for a cyber attack. And people don't often think about that. They think, oh, if I have all my firewalls and all my technical defenses up, you'll be safe. But if an employee clicks a link, it doesn't really matter about all your technical defenses, right? So Anshul and I, with our care lab, it's our cybersecurity lab that we have at in the Department of Criminal Justice at Temple. It's the Care Lab, which stands for Cybersecurity and Application Research and Education. We designed a social engineering pen testing event where we essentially had student teams apply. They came in and they tried their hand at social engineering. They got to try out OSINT, again, open source intelligence. They got to try their hand at phishing, sending phishing emails and doing a vishing phone call. And because, you know, we're at a university and we have to get all the ethics approvals, they were all simulated. So there was no actual attacks. All of their phishing and vishing attempts were done towards us at the care lab. And essentially in this competition, we hired these teams to come in to serve as social engineering pen testers to see if our lab was secure. So their job was to try and penetrate our lab. Through this social engineering competition um, to see if we could send them stuff. So, send them confidential files or agree to meet with us or give them information about our schedule or anything that they were not supposed to have. And they did this by coming up with pretexts, which is basically just a background story or a narrative, the persona that somebody plays when they are engaging in social engineering. So, like before, when I was saying someone's trying to break into somewhere, if someone's pretending to be that maintenance person, that's their pretext. So these student teams came and tried their hand at it, and they were really good. We had some some vision calls that were incredible, really convincing, and we had some judges come in who work in the industry, some professional social engineers to come in and judge and guide the way as well.
1: That's really interesting. And so they were sort of assessed on how convincing the pretext was and their implementation of the ask?
2: Yep. So I can't get into all of the grading details, but we're not just looking to see are they able to capture the flag, right? Are they able to get us to send them anything? It's also important, the pretext that they develop, is it a good pretext? Is it convincing? And like you said to the implementation, do they seem like they are fitting the persona that they're supposed to be playing? Some people are nervous, right? Because you have to think on your feet, especially during the vision call. But in that kind of case, if, you, if you're if you going into that and you're going to be nervous, then it might help to choose a persona where it would make sense for you to sound nervous like an intern or something like that.
1: And I guess the, the education that they get out of going through that process is, is very helpful for them.
2: Right. Yeah. So the idea that we have behind having the students play the social engineer, get into the mind of the adversary is that once they've done this offensive side, it's easier for them to understand on the defensive side what the attack will look like, how they could prevent the attack, respond to it, defend against it. So it helps them really just get into the mind of the adversary and understand how they think so that they can be better defenders.
1: And you're also doing other kinds of education as well. So you're doing just general cybersecurity awareness training. How do do those two play into each other?
2: Yep. So social engineering is a big part of cybersecurity that gets overlooked because it's centered on the humans. So we do a lot of educational training awareness programs where we teach people about social engineering. We oftentimes do something similar in the competition where we let them try their hand at it so they understand how it works. We've done this with high school students. And this also gives them the knowledge that you don't have to know how to code or be technical to be involved in cybersecurity, because that's what a lot of people think. That's even what I thought when I went into that cybercrime class when I was an undergraduate. I thought, you know, oh, I I have my computer science minor, I can code, I'll come hear about this cybersecurity class. But it's not the case, really, anyone can do it. That's what the educational aspect is for. And so we've done it with high school students, we've done it with educators, where we've kind of introduced the topic to them and also helped explain to them how they can teach it in their classrooms. So we've done that for middle and high school teachers and also for undergrad and graduate professors. And
1: how was that experience of training the trainers? The difficulties that I see with doing that is inspiring the confidence in them that they can teach. What has that aura of requiring a lot of technical knowledge?
2: That's definitely one of the things that we emphasize in the trainings. So You don't have to have any technical knowledge to be able to, to do these, right? and. And we see that even with the educators who sign up. We do get a lot of computer science teachers who sign up, but we get all subject teachers who come, and which is good because this can be related to any class, right? Even if you're in the medical field, we have students' competitions who come from that. You'll need this stuff if you're working in a hospital so that your hospital doesn't get ransomware by you clicking on a phishing email. So we emphasize that a lot in the educator workshops, and we also provide On our website, we have a whole section, a whole page of resources and course projects that Anshul has implemented in her classroom for a few semesters to be able to ensure that they work and they can be used. And we share those with the educators. So they know all the material because we tell them about it. And then they also don't have to worry about developing their own projects. Everything's included. And our website, we have the projects, we have the instructions, the rubrics, everything that they would need so they can just kind of go off and running.
1: Excellent. So it's a turnkey solution. Yes. You mentioned ransomware there and and ransomware is something that I know you've been doing work on and I'm keen to to ask you about because the thing that you've done is developed this data set.
2: This was back in September of 2019. Anshul wanted to do some research on ransomware, but there was... No data sets that we could find that were publicly available. There was a bunch hidden behind paywalls, but there weren't any that were just freely available to the public. So she came up with the idea to create it. So, starting back in 2019, I've been the main contributor doing the data entry for critical infrastructure ransomware attacks that are spoken about on the open web. So, news articles, there's cybersecurity websites post any any attacks they hear about. So, pretty much scour the web for any attacks we can find. And again, attacks against critical infrastructure. So critical infrastructure, there's 16 sectors, according to the DHS. And they're basically just the things that keep society moving and running. There's the transportation sector. There's the healthcare sector, the government sector. So they're all different sectors. And we compile any of the incidents that we can find into this data set. And we share it with the public so that there is some open source data and people don't have to pay to be able to get it.
1: What kinds of data is in that set? What would a typical observation contain?
2: So pretty much we have a reported attack. Let's say it's against a college. So we have the name of the college. We have the date that the college first found out about the incident. We have what sector it is. So colleges, that's part of the education subsector, which is part of the government sector. We try and find the data for how much of a ransom was demanded, if they paid, how did they pay. That data isn't always available, especially when we are just using open sources to find this, but we fill that out as much as we can. We try and get any information about how long the attack was. And then we also If the ransomware strain is available or the group behind the attack, we put that in there. And if we can, we map that onto the MITRE attack framework. We have a whole list of softwares or the ransomware strains, and so we map it onto that.
1: I think that's an interesting aspect of it, the use of the MITRE attack framework. What was the decision-making process that led to the MITRE ATT&CK framework being incorporated into the data set?
2: Within our request website form, there is an option for you to say, if you want us to try and add something to the data set, we can. We can't always accommodate that. But I believe the mapping to the MITRE ATT&CK came from a requester who suggested that. And we looked into it and it was it was doable. So we added that on and it adds a nice element because Within the data set, when we map that strain on, we hyperlink it to the website of that software on MITRE's website, and it gives a whole lot of information about that ransomware strain or that ransomware group. So it just adds an extra element, and it was something that we could do. It wasn't something where we had to rely on the information being in the article, other than what the ransomware strain is. So it was doable, and, and so we added it.
1: So with the hope of inspiring people to find this data set at your website and make use of it, what's some of the research that has been done using the data set?
2: I don't think I can get into the specifics of that, but we have had requests from all different types of people. We've had journalists and reporters ask for it. We've had other students who use it in their studies. We've had educators who look for it. We've had government requested as well, and and cybersecurity industry members. Oh, yeah, what they're doing with it, I don't know if I can talk about that.
1: Fair enough. So what we look forward to from you yourself in terms of research. Do you have, do you have more research coming on the social engineering or the awareness?
2: Yes. Yeah, so there's another social engineering competition that is starting this summer. The theme is Romance Scams. So you'll be seeing us posting on our social media soon about that and... Yeah, that's the big thing to look forward to, just the the Summer Social Engineering Competition. So this is our our third one now. The first one was that social engineering pen test. Last summer, we did one where the theme was ransomware attacks. And then this upcoming one is about romance scams, because romance scams are really big right now, especially after COVID. So that's a real problem. And we're trying to bring some awareness to that.
1: Awesome. Well, I'll I'll look out for that on social media. And um, thanks very much for sharing some time with us. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best with those social engineering capture the flag competition. Thank you. If you're involved in cyber, then you're often expected to answer questions on everything from what a roehammer attack is, to which crypto was currently hot for cybercriminals. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have cornered an expert in cyber security law. Professor Nicola Vermey is the Director of the Public Law Research Centre and the Associate Director of the Cyber Justice Laboratory at the University of Montreal's Faculty of Law. He has some great insights on the intersections between technologies and law, But more importantly, he's patient and he's willing to answer my asinine questions. So let's take advantage of that and ask him this. Some cybercrimes seem to make their way into a criminal court and other ones seem to make their way into a civil court.
0: What's the difference? Why would something be a civil matter and not a criminal matter? Well, by definition, every cybercrime is both. If it's a crime, then by definition, it can end up uh, in criminal court, or rather, because in certain countries, there's no distinction between a criminal and a civil court, but a criminal trial. So it will be the object of a a criminal trial if, obviously, you have the right evidence. Uh, But all that comes back to the question of burden of proof. If you're going in front of a criminal court, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the individual is guilty. Now, if you have pretty good evidence, but not great evidence, and very often in, in cybercrime, it's it's difficult to establish when somebody passed through f- five computers before hacking you or, or whatnot, or if they used zombies or you know, if it's a DDoS attack. It's not always easy to retrace. And even if you can retrace a computer, you can't always place somebody behind a computer. At best, you can say This computer belongs to Jim. Yeah, well, maybe Jim wasn't home and Jim's cousin used a computer. Or maybe somebody hacked Jim's computer and used it to uh, commit the attack. And so very often, you just don't have sufficient evidence to bring criminal accusations against somebody and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they did it. And then you have a civil court where the burden of proof is basically a question of more probable than not that the person did it. The criteria, and I don't know the expression in English, but the, the criteria is that whoever is suing can convince the court, you know, if you're going to use statistical, uh, it's 50 plus 1% more more likely than, uh, than not that they committed the, the crime. And so if I can convince the judge that it's more plausible than not that you are responsible for whatever happened, well, then I can uh, sue you uh, civilly. And then the other thing is very often the criminal trial, we just won't hear about it, but we will hear about the civil trial. So let's take the Desjardins case here in Quebec. I have no idea what happened to the employee at Desjardins, uh, whether there were criminal accusations or not. In all logic, if there's enough evidence against that person, we'll never hear about it because it will be settled. Well, in the sense that they will uh, plead guilty and either go to jail or, or have community service, again, depend, depending on how strong the evidence is and how strong a case uh, the prosecution thinks that they have. So we're not going to really hear about it unless the person actually decides that they want to go to court and then there is a hearing, and then there's uh, actually a decision that is published, and then we can read it. However, the civil side of things, well, the people suing Desjardins, well, that was settled out of court as well, but there were filings, and the, the media did cover that. And so we know there was a civil trial against Desjardins. Noticed, obviously, there wasn't a civil trial against uh, the employee simply because it's not worth anybody's while. You're not going to sue somebody that you know that even if you win, you're not going to get money out of, any money out of them. And I doubt this employee has the millions of dollars uh, in their account to indemnify every Desjardins client or customer that uh, ever was. I guess I should say shareholder, technically, because it's a, it's a co-op. It's not a bank. But all that to say, it's not a question that... Uh, you, you pick and choose. It's a question that sometimes you have sufficient evidence for a civil trial but not for a criminal trial. And sometimes you have sufficient evidence for a criminal trial and a civil trial is just not worth your while because you know that uh, the individual just doesn't have the means. Uh, I was actually telling my students last week, I don't know if you remember the Mafia Boy case. So Mafia Boy was actually a teenager here in Montreal Uh, Well, not in Montreal proper, but in the suburbs. And he hacked uh, a few sites in the US, I believe the FBI as well, if I recall, but caused technically millions in damages. And as the story goes, and this is actually his story, because I read part of his autobiography a few years ago, and he was basically playing at his friend's house when the FBI showed up at his parents' house. And so, you know, they showed up and the parents said, well, do you want us to call him? And they said, well, yes, please, because he's going to be under arrest soon. And so he came back and they arrested him. Now, this was a, I think, what, 13-year-old kid who committed millions of dollars in damages how many 13-year-old kids do you know who are multimillionaires? Uh, Unfortunately, I wasn't one. Actually, I say unfortunately. It's probably a fortunate thing that I wasn't a millionaire. I don't know how it would have turned out. But there aren't that many kids who could have. Now, some people would say, well, yeah, but they could have held his parents responsible. Well, in order to hold the parents responsible, you have to demonstrate that they either lacked in education, basically, they didn't install the, the proper values, or in supervision. And supervision, well, it's a lot easier to prove for a six-year-old than for a 13-year-old who already normally will have a a certain level of autonomy. And then, well, could they supervise or they even understand what he was doing? And so that's an example of, well, yes, technically he could have been sued civilly, but it wasn't worth anybody's while because there were no uh, means there. And they would have gotten a decision saying, you're right. It would have cost you a couple of thousand dollars and you can now frame it and put it up on your wall and every day you can pass in front of it and say, I was right. But that's basically all it's worth. And so here it's a, it's more of a criminal thing and I don't know exactly what happened to him if he went to jail or if he got community service or I don't know exactly what the outcome was because again, it was a few years ago that I read the biography. But that just goes to show that, again, it's not necessarily that it's one system is better than the other. It's In certain cases, you just don't want to bother with civil uh, a civil trial. And in other cases, you just can't bother with a criminal trial because you just don't have the evidence, even if you know that they did it.
1: A big thanks there to Professor Vermeer and a thank you to Rachel Blyman for the interesting conversation about social engineering and the ransomware dataset. There will be a link to the critical infrastructure ransomware attacks dataset in the show notes so that if you're interested in using it for some of your research, you can find it easily by just popping over there to the links. In the meantime, though, this has been Cybercriminology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. It's produced by me, only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research you can find out more about the show at cybercrimology.com or you can talk to me at cybercrimology on twitter or email me at cybercrimology at gmail.com